like your Bibles with me, let's turn again to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. We're going to look together at chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. We're going to continue working our way through the final chapters of this great book. And this morning we come to the, fir- the first six verses of Genesis 39. So let's look together at the first six verses of Genesis 39. This is the Word of God. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Well, let me begin this morning with two assertions. Two assertions. Number one, we all want to be happy. We all want to be happy. Happiness is something we all crave and long for. Not talking about superficial, temporary happiness. Talking about that deep-seated peace and joy that brings constant security and stability to your soul. We all want that. We may look a million different places to find it. But this is a universal truth. All human beings want happiness. Here's my second assertion. True, lasting happiness does not come as a result of earthly circumstances. True, lasting happiness does not come as a result of earthly circumstances. We're all so prone to think this way. If I could just get that job, if I could just get into that school, if I could just get so-and-so to love me, if I could get my marriage straightened out, if I could get my financial needs met, or if I could get my children to behave, or my children to succeed, or, 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 then I would be happy. So we're so prone to think that our happiness depends on circumstances. But church, earthly circumstances do not lead to happiness. They are broken cisterns that run dry. The result of pursuing happiness in this way is what the Rolling Stones sing about. I can't get no satisfaction. Or for those a little more update, what you too sing about. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Right? It's a never-ending search for true contentment. 
Some of you in here have read Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place, in which she chronicles her experience as a Christian who was sent to a Nazi concentration camp because she helped to hide Jews in her home. And towards the beginning of her story, Corey talks about being younger and learning a very valuable lesson. She, she had an aunt who lived with their family. She called her Tante Bep. And Tante Bep was constantly complaining. Maybe you know someone like this. Just constantly grumbling. Uh, Tante Bep had been a governess in a wealthy home for many years, caring for the children of that home. And now, whenever something happened that she didn't like, she would immediately talk about how much better things were back when she was with that family. The Wallers did things this way. Well, that would have never happened in the Wallers' home. Well, the Waller children were always well-behaved. The Wallers this, the Wallers that. She was always grumbling and complaining, wishing everyone was more like the Wallers. Well, Tante Beth talked so much about how much better the Wallers were that as she lies suffering and dying, young Corey went to her mother and asked, wouldn't Tante Beth be happier if we sent her back to the Wallers to spend her last days with them? And Corey's mother responded this way. She said, do you know when Tante Beth started praising the Wallers so highly? It was the day she left them. As long as she was there, she had nothing but complaints. The Wallers couldn't compare with the Van Hooks where she had been before. And when she was with the Van Hooks, she had been miserable. And then Corey's mom made this statement. She said, Corey, happiness isn't something that depends on our surroundings. It's something we make inside ourselves. Now don't misunderstand that last part. These were Christians, and they knew that happiness ultimately comes from Christ. But the point was this. True happiness does not come from our surroundings. It cannot come from outside of us in this world. It must take place within us. The way we get happiness in our hearts is by cultivating faith in Jesus and His promises. It is Christ and His benefits who is the source of peace and joy in our hearts so that we can face whatever earthly circumstances we are in. Ultimately, true happiness is the work of the Spirit within. Listen carefully to what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 15 through 17 concerning Christians. He says, speaking to believers, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit as of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Listen, listen to this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified in Him. In other words, the true secret of happiness is having this precious gift of the Spirit of God in your soul. The calm assurance that the Spirit gives to you that I am God's and He is mine and come what may, my God will take care of me. 
Circumstances are not the key to happiness. Quiet faith in God is the key to happiness. At the end of her story, Corey is weak and beaten down, having been harshly mistreated, underfed, overworked, and abused by the Nazis. She and her sister, Betsy, are sent to a death camp. They're placed in barracks that are overcrowded, tainted by human filth, infested with fleas. And yet Corey and Betsy were able to embrace this as an opportunity from God to minister to the other women, to pray with them, to read the Bible with them, and to tell them about Christ. They were hurting and they were sorrowful. They were in the worst circumstances humanly imaginable. And yet there was an unshakable joy and peace that even the Nazis could not take away from them. Church, learn this lesson. Lasting happiness does not come from our circumstances. It comes from Christ in us, the hope of glory. Well, this morning in these opening verses of Genesis 39, we see that Joseph was a man who by God's grace had found this key. From an earthly perspective, we would say that Joseph had every right to give way to despair and depression. Joseph was the most loved son of his father. He had been given preeminent status over his brothers. He was headed for a life of business in which he was going to have relative wealth and ease, including the chief inheritance from his father. The future looked so bright for Joseph. And now, betrayed by his own brothers, he has been sold into slavery. His precious coat has been torn and stained with the blood of an animal. He has been taken hundreds of miles from home into a strange land. We would say from an earthly perspective, surely Joseph has every right to complain. Surely Joseph has every right to despair. But we find no hint of that in these verses. We find Joseph working. We find Joseph continuing to be faithful to his God. We find Joseph striving for excellence. Joseph, though he is in chains, has a soul that is content and at peace. I want to bring this passage to bear upon us this morning under three headings. Here are three headings. First, Joseph's circumstances. Joseph's circumstances. Second, Joseph's response. Joseph's response. And third, Joseph's God. Joseph's God. So his circumstances, his response, and his God. First, Joseph's circumstances. Look at verse 1 again. Verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So Joseph comes to Egypt around 1800 B.C., This is during a period known as the Middle Kingdom in Egypt. We think we can place Joseph in a period within the Middle Kingdom of Egypt known as the 12th Dynasty. The 12th Dynasty. This phase in Egypt's history began when Pharaoh Amenemhat I reunited Upper and Lower Egypt. Egypt runs along the Nile River, runs along its banks, 
And after a time of division, uh, Amenemhat I had united northern and southern uh, Egypt together as one kingdom. This 12th dynasty was a flourishing time for Egypt. This was one of the peak moments in Egypt's history. The land was producing. Trade was flourishing. Business was booming. Through war, the kingdom was expanding. The pyramids had been built many hundreds of years before this. They were standing as monuments to kingdoms already gone. Egyptian hieroglyphics had been developed more than a millennia before this time. The Egyptian kingdom was filled with foreign slaves, some slaves captured in wars, others brought to the city through their bustling slave trade. The capital of Egypt at this time was likely a city established by Amenemhat I, and I'm going to try to pronounce this. It's important because it's where Joseph probably was. So the name of the city was Amenemhat Ichtawi, I think, which means Amenemhat, the Caesar of the two lands. And since Joseph was now a slave of the captain of the guard, it is likely that it was here in this capital city that he lived. Pharaoh Amenemhat I had lived a few centuries ago. He's now dead and gone. He had started this dynasty. He was like the George Washington of this kingdom. And Joseph came to Egypt now around the height of this dynasty, when one of Amenemhat's successors was now in power. We're never told precisely which pharaoh was in power at this time, because at this period in Egypt's history, pharaohs didn't use their names. They were simply called pharaoh. And so we do not know this particular pharaoh's name. We are told that Joseph was bought by Potiphar from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down from Canaan. Think about what this meant for Joseph. He was free and successful just days before. Now he has endured the shackles of the Ishmaelite caravan. He would certainly have been beaten or whipped if he did not continue to walk and keep pace on the long journey through the desert wilderness to Egypt. He's now brought into this bustling kingdom, likely stripped naked, set before the eyes of men who want to buy him for his labor. They look at him. They poke and prod him. They try to discern how much work can they get out of him. They haggle over money in a language that Joseph doesn't understand. Joseph is now at the mercy of men who care nothing for him. Joseph has been brought very low. He is purchased by Potiphar, a captain of the guard. And this means that Joseph's owner is a powerful man, one of Pharaoh's court. He is likely the captain of Pharaoh's security force, those men responsible not only to protect Pharaoh, but to do violence to Pharaoh's opponents. And therefore, Potiphar was certainly not the kind of man to be toyed with. Now, knowing the end of this story, we can see the sovereign hand of God at work here. Because of all the men in Egypt who could have purchased Joseph, it is Potiphar who buys him. Of all the places in the sprawling kingdom of Egypt where Joseph could have ended up, he finds himself in the capital city serving one who is a member of Pharaoh's court. Joseph has been brought very low, but God is clearly up to something. And with hindsight, we can see it clearly. But remember, Joseph 
could not. Joseph does not know the end of the story. But let this be a reminder and an encouragement to us. The trials that God brings into our lives have a purpose. Every trial has a rhyme and a reason, a part to play in God's unfolding plan to glorify His name and bless His people. And so whatever trial you may be enduring at this season of your life, see the sovereign hand of God behind it. Dark clouds sometimes hide the sunshine, but the sun is still there, and the sun is still shining. So also, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Rough weather does not mean that God's love for you is any less than it was the day before. I wonder, can you say with the hymn writer, Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. As we will see, it was this precious truth that brought great comfort to Joseph. So those are Joseph's circumstances. Let's look at Joseph's response. Joseph's response. The first thing to note is what we don't find in our verses. Namely, there is no trace of despair. There is no vestige of crippling bitterness or paralyzing anger. Instead, we find Joseph hard at work. He's faithfully fulfilling his obligations to Potiphar. Matthew Henry points out that Joseph had something that no man could take away from him. His brothers stripped him of his robe, but they could not strip him of his virtue. And so in these new circumstances, with no trace of grumbling or complaining, we find Joseph working. And as Joseph worked, God blessed Begin in verse 2. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Friends, Joseph was not made the overseer of Potiphar's household on the first day. There there were two elements that led to this. Joseph worked and God blessed. Joseph was not passive. Joseph was doing things, accomplishing tasks. And all that he did was made to succeed by the blessing of God. Joseph was brought into the house of Potiphar. That's a big deal. And he actively attended to all of the affairs of Potiphar's home. And as Joseph worked hard for Potiphar... God caused Potiphar's household to prosper. Now church, remember, when Joseph enters into slavery and is brought to Potiphar, he is still 17 years old. This is a young man. And yet what maturity he shows. Notice how trustworthy he was. Potiphar left everything in Joseph's charge and had no concern about anything. 
Joseph proved himself to be a man of integrity, a man who could keep his word. He proved himself to be reliable, to fulfill the duties given to him, and to fulfill them well. He became Potiphar's personal attendant, a position that we know from archaeological findings was very important. Potiphar was a very important man in the kingdom of Egypt, and now Joseph becomes his right-hand man. And so here God is exhorting us by Joseph's example. Friends, in whatever situation you are in, whatever circumstance, imitate Joseph's example. Do not give way to grumbling or complaining. Do not give way to doing a half-hearted job because you don't like your boss or because you're being mistreated or because you don't like the responsibilities given to you. Instead, in whatever callings God has placed upon your life, give yourself to faithful, excellent work. Fulfill your obligations and fulfill them excellently as though working for the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that as a Christian, You wear Christ's name. Don't associate Christ's name with shabby work. Don't associate Christ's name with half-hearted efforts. Keep your word at all times. Don't let Christ's name be associated with unfaithfulness. As Christians, part of being salt and light is taking our obligations seriously, fulfilling them for Christ's sake. And for this reason, every boss in Rocky Mount ought to desire to hire a faithful Christian. Every boss in Rocky Mount ought to be able to think, my business will be well served if a faithful Christian will come to work here. Every community organization ought to say, let's have this believer as our leader, this believer as our treasurer. Why? Because they can be counted on. Because they are people of integrity. Friends, Joseph was a slave who was at first given very basic slave work. When we consider the man that he worked for, it is likely that Joseph began his days as a slave by working in fields, cleaning poop out of stables, fulfilling other very menial tasks. And yet he was faithful in the small things. And so God exalted him to be over greater things. So friends, wherever you work, if you, if you work at Burger King, praise God that you have a job in this economy. And then second, be thankful. Be the most courteous, hardworking employee you can be. Never be ashamed to work hard in any lawful calling for the glory of God. Students, give yourself to excellent work. If it's a subject you don't like, don't let that that be an excuse for a half-hearted effort. But rather give that subject special attention. Do all you can to do the best work possible. Striving for excellence now will serve you well the rest of your life. We need to remember that one day we will give an account for every activity we've given ourselves to. Did we represent God well in that activity? Were we a faithful bearer of His image in that activity? And of course, remember that proverb that we quote so often. Proverb twenty-two twenty-nine. Do you see a man who is skillful at his work? He will stand before kings. And is Joseph's life not a living parable of that truth? 
Well, now let's look at Joseph's God. Third and finally, Joseph's God. Because we have to ask, why did Joseph not give in to despair? Why did Joseph not become crippled and paralyzed by bitterness and anger? What caused him to remain such a faithful, hardworking, trustworthy young man in these circumstances? And the answer is, Joseph was resting in his God. In fact, the most important words of this passage and of this entire chapter are the opening words of verse 2. The opening words of verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Here was the source of all of Joseph's success. Here was the source of the contentment, the peace, the joy that made Joseph such a faithful worker for Potiphar. The Lord was with Joseph. In fact, four times in this chapter, we hear this refrain in verse 2, in verse 3, and then we'll see it again in verse 21. We'll see it again in verse 23, over and over again reminded that Joseph's trip to Egypt was not a trip away from the presence of God. Joseph may be in a strange land. He may be in a strange home. He may be in a position he never thought he would be in, but his God is with him. And because his God is with him, Joseph is secure. Whate'er my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. What did God's presence, I'm sorry, why did God's presence make all the difference for Joseph? Dear Christian, in whatever trial you are going through, why should God's presence make the difference for you? Well, church, that phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, is rich in meaning. Let me identify just two of the truths contained in those words. And these two truths are true not just for Joseph, but for every believer in Jesus Christ. Our Savior, right before He ascended into heaven, said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so this truth, the Lord was with Joseph, can also be said of you if you are a Christian. The Lord is with you. So what does that mean? Let me make just two points. Number one, this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, means that Joseph was not alone. Joseph was not alone. Joseph's brothers, by selling him into slavery, separated Joseph from every person he had ever known. But they could not separate him from his God. An unbeliever, someone who did not know God, he would have been truly, utterly, completely alone in this situation. But there was absolutely no one who knew Joseph in Egypt. No one who cared for Joseph in Egypt. No one to have his back. No one to help him walk through this trial. But Joseph had his God. And this was better than if every person in Egypt had been his friend. In the midst of his suffering, Joseph could cast his anxieties and his worries, his cares and concerns upon the Lord in prayer. Like a faithful shepherd, God was with this sheep of his flock. And he would not allow Joseph to be torn to pieces by these circumstances. Joseph was protected by an invisible rod. He was being led by an invisible staff. Mount Hermon, there are few things in life that are certain. 
Think about that for a moment. What can you say with absolute certainty that you will have a week from now? With absolute certainty. Can you say with certainty, when we gather together next Sunday, you will still have your job? Can you say with absolute 100% certainty that you will still have your house? That you will still have your possessions? Or is it not possible, like it was for Job, that you could lose all these in one day? Dear friends, are you absolutely certain that you will not lose your family this week? We hate to think about these kinds of things, but is there not a whole host of ways that when the next Sunday comes around, you could have lost every member of your immediate family. Even our own health is not certain. Church, so few things in life are certain. The economy may crash tomorrow. A terrorist may attack tomorrow. A cataclysmic natural disaster could occur tomorrow that would change our lives forever. There is not certainty in this world except for a few things. And for those who are Christians, for those who have come to rest in Jesus, this is certain. You will never, ever, ever be alone again. Your God is with you. You will never be left without help. You will never be left stranded to face the future in your own weaknesses Your God is with you, and He will be with you for all eternity. Think about Frodo on his way to Mount Doom has this great task of taking this ring of power, and he didn't know what was ahead of him, but he knew he had already experienced pain. The trip had already been hard. He had already lost a loved one. He was suffering, and he knew that the road ahead of him was even harder, more difficult. But he had his friend, Samwise, with him. And he turns and he says, I'm glad you're with me, Sam. Because you see, even the hardest roads become a little easier when we know we're not alone. And yet the God who is with us is not a mere mortal. He is the God of all creation, of providence and of history. He is the God of infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, infinite ability. The God who is with us is the God who knows what we need before we need it. The God who has written the script of human history has guaranteed the happy ending for those who know His Son. So dear Christian, rejoice in whatever situation you are in. You are not alone. Your God is with you. And then second, The phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, means that God was working to bless Joseph. God was working to bless Joseph. These words do not merely convey God's presence. These words, the Lord is with you, convey not just His presence, but His favorable presence. When the Lord is with someone, He is with them to bless them. There is a sense in which the Lord is everywhere at all times, right? There is a sense in which all people are always in the presence of God. But when we read that the Lord is with someone, the point is that He is with them in a special way, with His favor to bless them. The Lord was with Joseph, and therefore Joseph prospered. And therefore, dear Christian, when I tell you that your Lord is with you, I am not merely saying that He is present with you, though that's great enough. But I am saying that 
Even if it doesn't feel like it, this very moment, your God is blessing you. This God is blessing you this very moment and in every moment you have ever lived and ever will live until you breathe your last and on into eternity, your Lord is blessing you. He is sovereignly working His plan to fit you for heaven and to draw you to Himself. Church, do not begrudge your trials. Do not begrudge the pain and the sorrow that must come into your life. Even these are a part of Christ's love for you, brought into your life for your eternal good, ultimately resulting in increased holiness and increased happiness for you. It's a strange thing. Faith, holiness, virtue. These grow best in the winter. You know, there's, there's few plants that are like that, right? They, they grow best in the winter when the conditions are the worst. But this is the way our faith is. This is why people don't say, it was when I was doing the best that my faith grew the most. But rather people say, it was when I went through that difficult trial that my love for Christ grew the most. You see, God is blessing you even in the difficult seasons. I'm going to close with this. I've been reading this week about a fellow named Hercules Collins. Love that name. Don't you love that name? Hercules Collins. Hercules, Baptist pastor at a time when being Baptist was dangerous. He was in prison for many years. He uh, could have had his life taken from him, but God preserved him. He was no stranger to suffering while he was imprisoned in absolutely deplorable conditions. He was with other Baptist pastors whom he watched die in the midst of those conditions. And yet Hercules knew that his suffering had a purpose and that one of those purposes was to rid him of his love for the world and to help him lean more on Christ and Christ alone. And so he wrote this from his prison cell. This is so good. He said, If we have all earthly enjoyments and have not Him, we have nothing comparatively. Riches deliver not from death nor wrath. For to have our portion in this life is a poor portion. But a holy soul can say, Thou art my portion, O Lord. And though I have but little earthly good, I have Christ, and therefore I have all. He also said this, The mariner in a storm will cast all overboard to lighten his ship and save his life. Oh, the world will sink you in the hour of temptation if it lies too near to your heart. Cast away all, shake off all, rather than to lose Christ and to lose your immortal soul. You see, even in trials, God is working in us, helping us to fall out of love with this world, helping us to long more for heaven, more for God's face, more for His presence. So even in your trials, God is blessing you. And therefore, church, as we saw earlier, we can give thanks in all circumstances. So, this promise that our Lord is with us is only for those who know Christ is Lord. And so if there are any here who have not submitted their lives to Christ, if you've not become His disciple, I want to call on you to do so. 
Understand that heaven and hell are in the balance. And Christ, through incredible sacrifice, has done absolutely everything necessary to make you right with God, to deliver you from God's righteous anger against your sins. But Christ will not take any into His heavenly kingdom who do not wish to go there. If you do not want Him as your King, if you prefer to stay master over your own life, then you will be cast away from the presence of God into that terrible place called hell. And so I call on you to turn from your sins. Turn from being the master of your own life. See Jesus as your only hope of being right with God and run to Him. Give yourself to Christ. Follow Him through baptism and church membership. Begin a new life of following His will. Then, and only then, can you take this promise as your promise that the Lord is with you. Whatever may come your way, you will never be alone, but God will always be working for your eternal good. Only when Christ is your Christ can you say, Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. You see, happiness doesn't come from our earthly circumstances. Happiness comes from knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen?